We are starting a brand new sermon series today that will run throughout the summer called One Choice, One Step. I grew up going to Sunday school as a kid. I, I had the wonderful privilege of being raised in a Christian home, uh, pretty good churches growing up, great Sunday school teachers, had the, the flannel graph stories. Remember flannel graph? That was the cool technological advancement of my childhood, I think. And I remember looking at these great heroes of the faith, people like David and Moses and Abraham, and just was in awe of who they were and how they followed God and how God used them in mighty ways. And so often the lessons were just, look at David, look at what he did for God, look at the courage that he showed, look at the faith that he showed. Taught how to have courage like Daniel to face uh, the lion's den. To have the courage like David and face your giants. How can we go out and face the giants in our life? How can we be used by God just like Moses? How can we follow him and obey him like Abraham? Those messages are good. We need to teach that to our kids. But we need to be careful. Because as we look at scripture in this way, we can begin to miss something very very important. I think this really came to the forefront through a, another sort of modern advancement in Christian education. Uh, it was a, a little thing known as Veggie Tales. Remember Veggie Tales? I mean, every church, I think, in worship was singing the hairbrush song. It was just, it really had an impact on my spiritual life. Uh, but Veggie Tales took this idea of teaching our kids a story and saying, how can you be like this Bible character, and, and it took it to the extreme, recreated, retold the stories in funny, hilarious ways, very memorable, very applicable, lots of fun. I looked up a couple, uh, Rack Shack and Benny, that's the story of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, and the subtitle, listen to this, A Lesson in Peer Pressure. Now I hope right there you can begin to see the problem with this way of teaching. The story of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego has a little bit of peer pressure in it. That certainly plays a role in the story. But that is not at all what the story of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego is about. It's picking a very small slice and teaching ourselves, teaching our kids, this is what it is. Another one is Josh and the Big Wall. A lesson in obedience. Obedience. Now, was Joshua obedient? Absolutely. Was he called to do some, some very extreme obedient acts, walking around a city seven times, blowing trumpets? Is that obedience? Sure. Is the story of Josh and the big wall? Is the story of Joshua and Jericho? Is it really just about obedience? Even today on the radio, if you listen to popular, uh, popular Christian radio at all, there's a song called Confidence by a band named Sanctus Real. It's a fun song. It's a good song. It says, Give me faith like Daniel in the lion's den. Give me hope like Moses in the wilderness. Give me a heart like David. Lord, be my defense so I can face my giants with confidence. Don't we want that? And please hear me. I want to be very careful how I say this. That's good. Okay? We, we should have faith to face things like characters of the Bible had similar faith. We should want that. It's okay and it's good to pray like that. But I think we shortchange Scripture when we narrow the focus in that way. 
I think we then come to Scripture in our, in our own Bible studies or small groups or personal devotional time, and we look at it and say, how can I believe like David? What giants am I facing in my life, and how does David's example of faith help me? What's missing there? God. Jesus. They become moralistic stories to shape a pattern of how we should live and what we should do. And if that's all they are, now hear me, they are that. That's there. They are good examples. But we can't stop there. It's not necessarily bad, but it is so incomplete. And if we allow it to remain incomplete, if we allow our understanding, our interpretation, the way we dig into these stories to remain incomplete in that way, it can lead to something very bad, which is a very me-centered faith. The Bible is all about me and how I should live. And that is not true. The Bible is all about God. First and foremost, who he is, what he is doing throughout history, how he is redeeming people out of a sinful world. That's what the Bible is all about. And we must keep the focus there. I'm afraid sometimes we might come to one of these stories like David facing Goliath or Daniel in the lion's den and say, well, you know, I mean, yeah, sure, I faced some rough patches in my life, but you know, last time I saw a lion was at the zoo. I mean, it really isn't part of my day-to-day life. We might say, well, I, I don't really face things quite like them. I'm not quite as important as David or Abraham or Moses. I'm not called to face things like they are. And I feel that we can downplay and miss the point of the day-in, day-out obedience that God calls us and the trust that he calls us to have in him. I feel like we can downplay that too much and just look for these major significant moments. The truth is, so much of following God and trusting in Him is made up of the day-to-day, seemingly insignificant moments of our life. But the Bible is a record of the major movements of God. It's not necessarily giving us the day-in, day-out decisions that the Israelites and later on the early church was facing each and every day. I mean, it would be a lot longer, let's admit it. It's the big pictures. I think we can also say, well, these are the heroes of the faith. Abraham is a hero. David is a a hero. And these are sort of the superheroes. I, I can't be, I'm so glad that God called somebody like David to be like that because that's just not me. And we can kind of step back and excuse ourselves and say, well, I don't, I I can't be like David because he's so amazing. David wasn't so amazing. In fact, the Bible makes that very clear. He had some major mistakes. You know, an interesting thing about the Hebrew Bible and the Christian Bible is that as you look at it, the Bible is very intentional. God is intentional to point out just how human and frail these heroes of the faith were. Because the point is to get our our attention off of them being heroes and onto the God who was the writer of their story. That's where we want to look. About six years ago, I preached a series called A New Look at Old Favorites. And we look through stories of the Bible, kind of famous Sunday school stories of the Bible. And I said, I wanted to look at those kind of what sometimes are kept as children's stories, but I wanted to look at them again as adults. This series is going to be very similar. We're going to look at some of these heroes of the faith, some of these major people in Scripture. Sometimes people that I think we, especially if you grew up in the church, 
we think, well, I've, I've been there, I've done that, I've heard that, I've seen the flannel graph, I've got it. You know, I've figured it all out. I saw the VeggieTale video. I know everything there is to know about Joshua and the slushies that were dropped on him. So, you'd have to see Veggie. Don't see it. It's, it's okay. Anyway, but I digress. So, it's going to be similar. But we're going to use this theme of one choice, one step. Because as I thought through these major stories of Scripture and kind of looked at what what is the central theme. At the heart of it, there is one choice that they all faced and one choice that we each face each and every day, every moment of our lives. And that choice is the same. It's the same for David as it was for Moses, as it is for Abraham, as we'll look for Adam and Eve. Uh, Today, we're going to look at that story as it is for us today. It is literally the exact same choice. It is a simple but difficult choice. And it is this choice. Will I trust God? That's the heart of every story of Scripture. Will I trust God? So then we look at the story and we see that it's about God. Who does he show himself to be? What power does he display? What's his plan? What's the work that he's doing? Can I, will I trust that? You see, we tend to overcomplicate following God. Oh, I don't know if God wants me to move here and do this and marry this person and take this job and, and buy this car or buy this home or wear the stripes, wear the plaids. It, you know, we kind of overcomplicate it too much. It all starts with one question, one choice. Will I trust God? Every other step, every story in Scripture, every action in Scripture, everything else, including in our own lives, comes from that one choice Will I trust God? And that's what I mean next is this one step. What are we going to do then because we're trusting God? And that's where it does become different. David's step is different than Moses' step is different than Abraham's step is different than all of ours. But instead of looking, how do I, okay, I trust him. How do I figure it all out and follow God? God usually just calls us, says, look, here's a step I'm laying in front of you. Just, Just trust me and step there. Why, God? I want to know. No, no. God's saying, no, no, just step. I've got this. You take that step. And so we're going to look at this. See, I think when we overlook the choice of whether or not to trust, and we simply look at these things as a, a moral tale, I think we start asking, do I agree? Do I agree with what David did? Do I agree with what God is teaching David? Do I, do I agree with what this is saying about God? Do I agree that this will work in my life? I think another question we start asking is, what will I gain? If we're looking at it as a story about us, we say, well, is this going to help my life? What am I going to get out of this? I think we ask, is this what I want? Do I really want this for my life? Or maybe that part of who God is and what he's teaching. Maybe that's just not important. I'll let that go because it's just not me. It's not what I want. I fear we end up just focusing way too much on ourselves. And so the choice, will I trust God, is seen over and over in Scripture. Abraham received this incredible promise from God to go, to follow, so that he would be used by God. But it started with, would he trust the God who made the promise? Every step after that came out of that. David stepped up in a difficult situation. 
Nation of Israel was outnumbered, on the brink of failure. There's this giant out on the field, and everybody's quaking in their tents and scared. And David says, I trust God. And so he steps out. I remember hearing a message once on five smooth stones. Five smooth stones. Have you ever heard that? Five smooth stones. We need to have five smooth stones. This is how God prepares stones. That is not what the story is about. (laughs) It misses the point. Who is the God that allowed a feeble and frail young man to step out on the battlefield and conquer an enemy way bigger than him, way stronger than him, much more experienced than him. And we see it in David's cry. The Lord has given you into my hand. I come against you with the Lord Almighty. David knew it was all about trust. Everything flowed out of that trust. It's the same for us. And so I pray throughout this scripture, as we look at these great stories of scripture, that we will first and foremost be in awe of who God is, and only secondly, in awe of these people and what they did. That we will read these stories, study them to see how God shows himself trustworthy. How we can rely on him, make the choice to trust in him, so that our trust can grow. More to trust in that God, rather than to be like the people, but just to keep on trusting in God. I pray that we'll see these people as examples of trusting, or as we'll see today, not trusting, Some of the examples in Scripture are bad examples. So that we'll see them as these examples of trusting or not trusting God in various circumstances that truthfully might not relate to where you're at today. But that's okay because God is the same. And you are trusting in the same God whether you're going through the same thing or not. And then we'll look at the step. If we choose to trust God, How then do we know how to take that step? What is the step of trust that God is calling us? And this may be different for all of us, and it makes it hard as a pastor to kind of lay it out for you because your step might look different than mine. But I'll try to hit some broad brushstrokes of what God calls all of us to do. God's never called me to slay a giant. God's never called me to build an ark. But he does call each and every one of us to trust him day in and day out and to live for him and live as a missionary in our local setting, in our community. Now, I want to clarify a couple things because I've used the phrase Bible stories. And inevitably, when I use that phrase, somebody will say, are you saying that they're just stories? I want you to understand when I say Bible stories, there there are three important things you you need to get from this. And I'll try to emphasize these as we go throughout the series. First of all, these stories are about a real God who is active and at work in this world. There is a God. These are not just things that, when I say stories, I don't mean somebody wrote these things down just to kind of teach us some morals and some good things. There is a God and he had these things written down. He has a purpose in having all of them recorded the way that they are recorded. So there is a true God. Secondly, when I say Bible stories, I want you to understand, I believe these are true stories about real people. I truly believe that. I have spent over the past 20 years of my life as a student of Scripture 
studying in college, studying in seminary, preaching, teaching. And I will tell you, the more I dig into the Word of God, the more background reading, the more I learn of the ancient cultures, both the Greek and the ancient Near Eastern cultures, the more I study and learn and grow, the more I am fully convinced each and every one of these things is real and true and actually happened. And we live in a modern time that says, oh, that's just a fable. We don't really, Jonah couldn't really be swallowed by a a big fish. Look, my faith says there's a God who created everything. I mean, if he could do that, really a fish swallowing a guy is no big deal. I mean, really, you have to look at what are we saying about God? If I'm saying this didn't happen, why? Who am I to say what God is capable of? If God can put the weight of my sin and the punishment for my sin on his son, and his eternal son can die in my place, man, the rest of it is easy. So yes, when I say stories, I mean real stories and true stories. So there is a real God. These are true stories about real people. And finally, God is the same today as he was in every story in Scripture. That truth is mind-blowing. The same God that was with Abraham wherever he went, when everything seemed against him and it didn't make sense what God was calling him to do, that same God is with us today. When God was with David, when he marched out to meet Goliath, to take on something he couldn't handle, that God is with us today. The God that that brought Shadrach and Meshach and Abednego safely through the fiery furnace, that God is with us. So when we read these stories, we need to be in awe. That's my God. And he is with me just as much as he was with them. And so, today we're going to start this series by looking at, really, the first story of Scripture, Adam and Eve. So open up to Genesis chapter 1, verse 1. I mean, if we're going to start at the beginning, let's start at the beginning. Genesis chapter 1, verse 1, lays out the, the most foundational elements of all of Scripture are right here in the early phrases of this passage. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. We, we always want to kind of move on, get to creation. How did it happen? Does it meet up with science? But man, we need to stop here. In the beginning, God created. Now let's break this into a, a couple of phrases here. The first is, in the beginning, God. By saying, in the beginning, and then saying, God... Who was there in the beginning? Before everything else, before anything else existed, we have God. The Bible has no interest in trying to explain where God came from because there is no way to explain it. He was just there in the beginning. God is eternal. He was there before all things. This also tells us another important truth that is easy to neglect and forget. There is a God. There is a God. Secondly, where are we in this verse? Nowhere. (laughs) So that's the corollary to the truth there is a God. I'm not him and neither are you. We are not God. There is this modern movement to, to try to make us all feel so important and describe us as little gods in our own way and we are our own deities and we should serve ourselves and it's I find it profoundly ironic that the more our society tries to do that, the more miserable our society is. 
There is a God. Don't take his job. You're not good at it. And neither am I. He existed in the beginning. He is eternal. Everything else comes from this foundational truth. Everything in scripture. There is a God. We're not him. He created all things. And that's the next phrase. He created everything that exists was made by God. It came from him. And I'll tell you a foundational truth. When you make stuff, you get to dictate how it works. The truth of God creating all things is an expression of his sovereign authority over everything. We don't get to go to God and say, God, I really think you blew it on this one. I know you said this, but we'd like to kind of vote on a little resolution to revise that. Could we just change? No, he created it. He knows how everything works. We don't. Everything comes from him, exists for him. He has a plan and he is sovereign over everything he has created, which is everything. Finally, it says, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. This is something lately over the past couple of years I've studied more and more of because it's, it's easy to take this phrase as simply, you know, heavens is everything kind of up there, sky, earth, uh, sky, space, those sorts of things. And the earth is, well, it's everything down here. And that's true. This is a statement of God creating all things, heaven and earth. But I believe it's more than that as well. You see, throughout scripture, there are these twin themes of heaven being the perfect dwelling place of God and earth being where we live. In Psalm 33, verses 12 through 14, it points this out so clearly. Blessed is the nation whose God is the Lord, the people he chose from his inheritance. Verse 13, from heaven, the Lord looks down and sees all mankind. There's God in heaven, his dwelling place. Then the very next verse, verse 14 says, from his dwelling place, he watches all who live on the earth. Now, now stick with me because you might be thinking, okay, so what? In creation, these two environments, heaven and earth, heaven, God's dwelling place, earth, our dwelling place, are perfectly intertwined and matched. We get to be where God is. He created us to live right there. He created the heavens and the earth to gather his dwelling, our dwelling in perfect relationship, perfect harmony. It is paradise. Genesis chapter 2, verse 15. The Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden. In this earth, this creation where we are to live, God made a special creation. This place where he would, seems, daily walk around the garden. And Adam and Eve would be there and he'd be like, hey, Adam, what's up? How you doing? Check out that new fruit over there. What's going on with you guys? Can you imagine just walking around and seeing God? Just seeing him right there and having him interested in who you are and what you're doing. This garden is like this meeting place between heaven and earth where the presence of God would meet with his people and they would live in relationship with him. This theme goes on throughout scripture. Even after sin enters the world, we have these places of this overlap. You see it in the temple, in the tabernacle of the Old Testament. The dwelling of God is among his people. When you understand the doctrine of, of sin and how awful sin is, and the doctrine of the holiness of God, how holy and pure and righteous he truly is, any concept of that holiness dwelling among sinful people is astounding. It is amazing. And yet God made it possible. We see it so much in the incarnation of Jesus Christ. God takes on flesh to dwell among us. 
We see it when Jesus teaches his people to pray. He says, Lord, may your, be, your will be done in earth as it is in heaven. He says, here's the place of your perfect will being carried out, heaven. He's saying, but I'm praying that that would equally also be carried out on earth. And so we have this place in the garden where God creates this place to meet with his people. And we look at Genesis uh, chapter 1, verses 26 and 27. We're told that we're created in the image of God. So we're created to have this reflective, perfect, honoring, worshiping relationship with God. We are different than all the rest of creation. And God took those that he created differently and put them in a special place, gave them everything they needed so that he could meet with them constantly and they could live in his glorious presence. Which makes the next part of Adam and Eve's story so devastating. Because if anyone should have been able to make that choice to trust God, it was Adam and Eve. He gave them everything. They had a perfect relationship with him. But we look at Genesis chapter 2, verses 16 and 17, and we are introduced to a part of creation, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Genesis chapter 2, verses 16 and 17, and the Lord God commanded the man, you are free to eat from any tree in the garden. He said, Adam and Eve, go for it. Have at it. All of this is yours. Do with it whatever you want, except Except one thing. Verse 17. But you must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, for when you eat from it, you will certainly die. Why? Why did God do this? Some people will say, well, it's just a test. I think it's more than that. You see, I believe in that culture, the the understanding of the knowledge of good and evil was tied to the authority of determining good and evil. To understand what is good. Not just, hmm, I tasted that and it's good. But to have the authority to declare something good and to declare something evil. To know so much about the world that we get to say, I think this is right and I think this is wrong. And God told Adam and Eve at the very beginning, that is not for you. That is not your authority. And that's still true today. It is not for us to determine what is good and evil, right and wrong. We don't get to have a vote on those things. We don't get to come together and decide what's most popular. God says, that's my job. Don't take it. I believe the tree of knowledge of the knowledge of good and evil was a real tree in a real place. I also think it had profound symbolic meaning. Scripture can have both. God is a wonderful, perfect author. When he creates something, he can also say this means something. Don't miss it. The knowledge, the authority of good and evil was restricted to God alone. It was not for Adam and Eve to take. And so we come to chapter 3. Now the serpent was more crafty than any of the wild animals the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, did God really say? Did God really say you must not eat from any tree of the garden? Remember the first step is is a choice, really. The choice is, do I trust God? Now watch what the serpent's doing to Eve. He starts by questioning whether or not God has spoken. 
did God really say, is that really the word of God? Is that really what God said? Do you truly know what God has said? Do you truly trust that this is what God has said? To her credit, Eve, for the most part, sticks to, yeah, God said this. I believe that God actually said, don't eat from this tree. The serpent takes it farther, verse 4. He says, you will not certainly die. See, that's another step in doubting who God is. Now, the serpent is tempting Eve to sit in judgment on whether or not God's word is true. Well, he said you'll die, but that's not actually true, is it, Eve? And Eve's going, hmm, I don't know. You see, the choice to trust God always includes trusting his word. And doubt of God will always come from doubting his word. This is why scripture is so important. It's the very word of God. Serpent goes on. Verse 5, he says, For God knows that when you eat from it, your eyes will be open and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. Now, not only is he judging or causing Eve to judge whether or not God said something, whether or not it is truthful, but now he's questioning whether or not it is good. Well, God's holding out on you. I mean, Eve, come on. You should be able to look at this and say, well, look how beautiful it is. Look how good it is. Isn't this how we like to live our lives? Isn't this our modern society? Well, look how good it is. It makes so-and-so happy. It makes them feel good. Isn't that good if it's good for them? It's the same words that the devil used back in the garden to tempt Eve. When we begin to doubt the goodness of God's plan and the goodness of his will, and the goodness of what he has said, we are not trusting God. And then we see the choice. You see, we like to go back to Adam and Eve taking the fruit and eating it as kind of the fall of all mankind, but it came from a choice. A choice to not trust God. And we see that choice in verse 6. When the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye and also desirable for gaining Wisdom. And just stop there. Because there's the choice. Where in that is anything that God said? Where in that is any reliance upon God, his authority, his word? It's gone. God has just been kicked off the throne. Eve has put herself in the very place of God and said, hmm, this tree's good stuff. I, I want it for food. Really? God gave them everything, like a garden full of what I imagine was some of the best food ever, and yet she wants this one thing? Isn't that how sin works? It's pleasing to the eye. It's attractive. Even though God says don't do it, if, if Eve thinks it looks good, then she has to have it. It's desirable for gaining wisdom. It meets this desire that she has to get ahead, to grow smarter, to be more powerful. Think of the lie of this. Where was their place in creation? It was above everything. What did they have to try to get above? Well, nothing in all creation. Only God. If they wanted to get a leg up, a step up, and be more important than somebody, the only person they were trying to be more important than was God. You see, this is a choice. It's a choice to not trust God. It's a choice to put our own will, our own desires above God's. It's a choice to put our own judgments over God's judgment. A choice not to trust God 
is ultimately to put ourselves in God's place. When we choose to not trust God, it's more than just a choice of disobedience. It is a choice of rebellion. Kicking God off his throne and trying to sit in his place. That's why this sin and every other sin is such a big deal. We look at it way too often and say, well, you stole a pencil, you shouldn't steal a pencil. Well, come on, stealing a pencil isn't that big a deal. But when the God of the universe says don't do something, and you say, well, I know better, it's not about a pencil anymore, is it? Now, please, if, if you somewhere in your life stole a pencil, I'm not condemning you to hell, okay? There's grace, there's forgiveness. But don't miss the point. It's about God and who has the authority. The specific act of the, the sin or the obedience or disobedience is secondary to who God is and us admitting he has authority over us and over all things. And so Adam and Eve take a step. At the end of verse 6, they both eat from the forbidden tree. That's their step. They had chosen not to trust God, thought they knew better, and then they acted upon that. And because of this choice and this step, all of humanity is born under the curse of sin. Adam and Eve are sent away from the garden. This Union, this beautiful meeting place, the garden between God and humanity is, is now broken. They're kicked out. There's a disunity now between God and his people because he are holy and we are now sinful. The relationship that's established in chapter 1, verse 1 of Genesis is broken, but God has a plan. He would call Abraham. He would shape the people of Israel and draw them into a relationship. He would call Moses and he would bring his people out of Egypt. And he would establish his dwelling place among them that they might know him and learn about him. So that one day the Messiah could come, God with us, Emmanuel, and offer salvation to all who believe. A new creation, a new identity, not in Adam, but in Christ. So how do we apply the story of Adam and Eve? Our choice is ultimately the same. Will we trust God? Think about it today. What's your choice? How do you choose each and every day? Are you trusting God? Or are you sitting in judgment on what he says? Are you questioning his will and trying to decide if you know better or not? But if we would just stop and say, I trust him, period then everything flows out of that. We need to remember and understand what this story, this account of Adam and Eve teaches us about God. He is sovereign. God is just as powerful and sovereign today as he was when he created the heavens and the earth. He hasn't changed one bit. God created us to be in a relationship with him. This is your reason for existing. People always say, well, I want to know I'm here. What's my purpose in your life? Your purpose in your life is to be in a relationship with your creator. That's it right there. And God has done everything necessary to make that possible. God has given us everything we need. Just as he did with Adam and Eve, he has given us everything. Most importantly, he gave us his son. That whoever believes in him can have eternal life. So we must choose to trust in God. God is God, and we are not. I say that over and over again because, frankly, not only do I want you to hear it, but I need to hear it, and I need to remind myself, He is God, 
I am not. I need to quit trying to take his job. We need to understand that his word is truth. We need to quit saying, did God really say? We need to quit asking, is is what he said true? or, Or do I agree or disagree? We need to quit asking, is it good? And we need to start saying, he is sovereign. He is a good God. Therefore, what he says is by necessity good. Whether I see it as good or not. That's not my job. That's not the fruit that I am to eat. That's not my place in this world. And then what's our step? You see, trust in God will always show itself through steps of obedience in our life. We've been looking at the book of Galatians over the past 13 or 14 weeks or so. And we looked at how it's only through faith in Jesus Christ that we can be saved. We can't cause ourselves to be saved. There's nothing we can do to save ourselves. It is all of Jesus Christ. But we must also remember that a saving faith that trusts in God will show itself in steps of obedience, imperfectly, impartially, often falling flat on our face, but getting back up and saying, I trust him, I will keep on following. So here's a step for you today. Get to know God better. Don't settle for a veggie tale surface faith of how does this speak to me? What do I want out of this? Dig into the word of God and ask this question, who is God? How can I trust him more? God has not called you to be like Abraham. He's not called you to be like Moses or David. He's probably not going to put you in those settings. And you should probably be very thankful for that. But he has called you to face other things. And the same God that was with them is with you. The same God that saved them can save you. The same God that used them to carry out his eternal plan in this world wants to use each and every one of us. And we need to ask ourselves, will I, do I trust him? Stop overcomplicating it. Stop saying, do I agree or disagree? Do I want this? Just stop and say, do I trust him? Because I think then the next step becomes fairly obvious. So today and each week throughout this series, I want us to each ask ourselves over and over again, will I trust God? And then if we're choosing to trust God, how am I living that out in my life? What is the step that God is laying before me saying, trust me, I can use you in your place of work. I can use you in your family. You can be a witness for me. You can overcome this sin. You're going to help somebody else in this trial or this temptation. I don't know what that step is for you. Adam and Eve blew it. But God is good and he is gracious. Let us trust him and step out in obedience. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, as we walk forward in this series, may we be confronted again and again with the importance of making the choice to trust you. There is that moment in our lives when each one of us needs to ask ourselves, am I living for myself or am I going to trust you? when we're confronted with the reality that we can't deal with our own sin, we need Jesus. And that moment when each one of us needs to say yes to Jesus as our Savior. But Father, then as we are Christians and live as Christians, we still need to each and every day be reminded 
of this choice to trust you. Instead of coming with our own agendas, our own desires, our own wants, to just stop and say, Father, I trust you. I don't understand. I don't always agree. But you are God and I am not. And so I will trust you. And as a church, we will trust you. And as individuals, I pray we will trust you. And then, Father, guide us. Show us that step. Show us how we can live out that trust for you in our day-to-day life. In your name we pray. Amen.